All right, let's go to the Bible. Luke chapter 2. If you found that, won't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 7. It is a familiar story, but you follow along. and Let's see the grace of God in it. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Verse 1. <clears throat> In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit that you would make it so that I would accurately represent what you've given us in your word. Spirit of God, we ask that you would open hearts to receive. God, I pray that you would bring healing and hope, that you would restore joy. God, I pray that today as we look at this story, our eyes will be turned to the good love you've given us in Christ. And so help us now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You may be seated. In straightforward language, the text before us describes the most astounding, the most monumental, earth-shaking, life-changing event in the history of the universe. This story is here to remind us that God is alive. That God is good, that, that God cares for people, that God actually loves His people. This story opens the doors of heaven. This story transcends the laws of nature. This story promises forgiveness. This story promises forgiveness of sins and renews our hope. This story reverses... Our hate. This story, if, if told correctly, gives you a reason to smile at the future. Because if this story means what I think it means, you will never be alone. You will always be loved. Your guilt as terrible as it might be, is taken away. Your life has purpose, real direction, and nothing that has happened to you. Listen to me. Nothing that has happened to you. No pain, no hurt, no abuse, no deceit, no depression, no mistreatment, no loneliness. Nothing that has happened to you has been wasted. If this story is true, 
then everything that, that's been going on in your life is actually going somewhere. Seven verses. It's just seven verses. These seven verses serve as a keyhole. Let, let's bend down and look through the keyhole. These verses serve as a keyhole to look into joy unspeakable filled with glory. There's, there's drama here. It's the drama of redemption. It is the story of hope. It's the, it's the joy of forgiveness. These seven verses. My hope is that these seven verses today will give you something to meditate on. That, that you can dwell on the gracious love of God. The gracious love of God for you in Christ Jesus. God's care for you in the world. God's comfort for you as you live this hard life. So let's take these seven verses. Let's, let's awake to the drama of Christmas. Let, let's, let's declare war on the demons that haunt you. Let's declare war on the sin that has entrapped you. Let's declare war on the dread that tomorrow sometimes puts in your heart. I want, to, I, want, I want you to take this passage and I want you to believe. I want you to believe that God loves you. I want you to believe that, that Christ died for you. I want you to believe that His plans for you are good plans. I want you to believe that you have nothing to fear because Christ is already standing in the center of tomorrow. And if God is for you, if God is for you, who can be against you? Seven verses. Seven. And I want you to see that Christmas, Christmas is a kept promise of love. Christmas is a promise from God, a kept promise of love. I tell you what, let's do it. It's a familiar passage. You know it. You've heard it read a thousand times. I've read it a thousand times. Christmas Eve, I'll read it with all the kids up here. That's the most nerve-wracking thing, by the way. I'll read it with all the kids up here Christmas Eve. So we know the story. So let's just go through it. And I'll, just, I'll serve as a tour guide today. I'll walk through the passage. Let's go through the passage and pull out some things of interest and see God working in this story of hope. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. Join me there in verse 1. First thing I want you to see is that God's sovereignty, God's sovereignty means our security. God's sovereignty. What I mean by the word sovereignty means that God is in control. If God is in control, then we are secure. When I talk about God's sovereignty, I mean His rule over the entire universe. Join me in verse 1. Notice what the text says, in those days, Paul's. In those days. In what days? Remember what's going on. The man named Luke, he has written this gospel, this letter. He has written it to a man named Theophilus, a friend of his. He's doing this to convince Theophilus that Jesus Christ is worth his life. And in order to, to give the veracity of all the things that have happened, from time to time, Luke will give you a little bit of a time stamp. He'll say that on this at this particular time, this person in history was doing this. 
For instance, in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 1, verse 5, he introduces us to Herod the king. Luke says, in the time when Herod was king in Judea. Herod the Great, terrible man. Herod the Great is the one that will kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Go back and read about Herod the Great. Herod was king and he, he murdered his own wife. Killed a couple of his sons. He's a, just a terrible person. In fact, um, Caesar Augustus will say of Herod the Great, I'd rather be one of Herod's dogs than one of his children. Speaking of Caesar Augustus, we meet him in chapter 2, verse 1. Luke gives us another time stamp. Gives us a historical reference. He says, in those days, a decree, a law, went out from a man named Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be registered. Here is Caesar Augustus, the emperor in Rome. The Roman Empire has now stretched over the known earth. History knows this man as Octavius or Octavian. Let's get a little uh, historical reference. Who is Caesar Augustus? He is the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is assassinated. Caesar Augustus, who is known, known as Octavian, the grandnephew had been adopted by Caesar as his son. He was the successor to the throne. After a civil war, he becomes a great administrator. He will bring unity to Rome. The empire will grow in what is known as the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome will be because of this man, Caesar Augustus. He's the Caesar that said, I found Rome in brick and I left it in marble. Caesar Augustus was so powerful that the Senate gathered together and voted to give him the title Augustus. That's not his name, it's a title. Augustus, it means supreme, it means divine, it means Lord. You can already feel a problem and a tension in this passage when we are introduced to the most powerful man in the world in verse 1 and we know who's coming in verse 7. This could be entitled, The Story of Two Kings. But that's not the title. I didn't write it. Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful man that Rome has ever seen, he now has issued a decree. This decree affects everyone that is under his authority. It is a decree that will trickle down from Rome into Judea all the way to Nazareth and finds Mary and Joseph. A decree that will set in motion Mary and Joseph leaving Nazareth, going to this little town named Bethlehem. They are going there to register. You know the story. But what none of these people can see, what Mary don't know, what Joseph don't know, what Quirinius the governor doesn't know, what they don't know what Caesar Augustus doesn't know is that there is a much higher, holier decree over them all. His decree is serving another decree. Hundreds of years before, through the prophet Micah, God spoke. This is what he said, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me 
One who is to be ruler. There's a king coming. Whose coming forth is from old. The ancient of days. Now think with me, just in this one little verse, just as we're introduced to this most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on earth at the time, was nothing more than a pawn in the hand of the one true God. Here's the God who changes the times and the seasons. Here's the God who removes kings and He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. Do, do you see that Caesar Augustus and his decree is in obedience to another eternal decree? That Christmas has us look beyond what we can see. Brothers and sisters, don't fear. Don't fear the law of man. We live in a day and time right now. It is, it is probably legitimate for Christians to fear what's happening in our world. It is legitimate to have concern that the world is devolving in such a way that the laws of the land no longer reflect even a remnant of what we've known from the laws of God. It, it sometimes can feel like everything is turning on us. This passage reminds me, do not fear. Because over the law of man stands the eternal law of the one true God. And this God has sent forth His Son born of a woman, born under the law, for what? To redeem us who were born under the law. So that we might, we might be adopted children of God. Look, I read verses 1 and 2, and, and I know that it's the Christmas story, but when I read verses 1 and 2, I am reminded of our great sovereign overruling God. That our God is ruling over this evil world, and when this evil government and world dissipates, the one true God will still be ruling. This Christmas, it reminds me, I'm reminded that our God in this sovereign control of the world. Look, for all of you that worry, all of you that worry, you worry about how your kids are going to grow up, the world, your kids are going to grow up, the schools are going to go to, you worry about the laws of the land, you worry... It's good for you to take stock and remember that if God can move the hand of Caesar Augustus to serve his will, then you and I have nothing to worry about. Christmas. Christmas is the story of a kept promise of love. There's a good king in this story. His sovereignty means my security. If God is in control, you can sleep at night. His sovereignty, my security. What else do we have here? Let's go to it and find something else in the passage. Uh, that's, so when we talk about sovereignty, we talk about God con controlling all of the big events of history. I want to bring it closer to me and you, to, to our everyday life. And that's my second point, number two. God's providence. God's providence means our protection. So, so when you think of sovereignty, think of God in control of all the events of history. When you think of God's providence, let's bring that into our everyday lives. So 
Is he, is he in the details? Let me show you where I get this. You watch the story unfold. Watch what Luke does with the narrative. He goes from the big picture to, um, to the small. Watch how he goes from, from the universal in verse 1 down into specifics. He starts with the world, then he goes into the region, then he goes into the town of Bethlehem. He starts with Caesar Augustus, then he mentions another man, Quirinius, the governor. Then he gets to the house of David and Joseph and Mary, and then the baby in the manger. So we've talked about how God works in the big events of history, and, and which you might say macro events of history. Let's go to the micro. Let's go in close in verses 2 and 3 and 4. You join me there. Go to Joseph and Mary. Let's read the verses with some comment. Verse 2. The first registration when Quirinius was governor. That's another timestamp. Verse 3. All went to be registered, each to his own town. So now you see the movement of humanity that Caesar Augustus has caused. And part of that movement, we have two people, Joseph, verse 4, and Mary. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, his hometown Nazareth, Mary's hometown Nazareth. They go to the city of David. Why? Because Joseph, by providence, is connected to David. So he's got to go to Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary are probably married at this point. She had the annunciation, the announcement. She's going to be pregnant. She is pregnant. She goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth. She stays there three months. She's starting to show. By now, the pregnancy is showing. People are going to talk. Joseph is probably a little older than she is. He's a carpenter. He's going to be well established. This marriage is most likely arranged. It could have, could have been just a quiet life, but now before they've come together as husband and wife, she's pregnant. There, there is an issue at hand. Joseph decides he's going to put her away quietly because he's a nice man, but the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, don't do that. But the angel of the Lord didn't go to everybody else. So he's carrying that. It's good, probably. It's God's providence to get him out of, get him out of Nazareth. To get on the road, leaving the gossip behind. To get on the road, it's 90 miles. There's no evidence that they rode any kind of animal. They're just walking. Think of the resilience of this young girl. She's now five, six months. Who knows? There's no indication, by the way, that she was nine months pregnant, walked the 90 miles, got there just in time to have the baby. We're just not told that. What we're told is that, that, they, that they go to Bethlehem. They got to go there. They walk the 90 miles there. The future is unknown. Joseph, I mean, think of the questions. Think of the questions that they both have, the discomfort. Think of the, the ridicule, the snickers behind their back. Now they show up in this, in this crowded village, city of David, Bethlehem. They have no idea that all along the way, God has been guiding by His providence. This young couple is from Nazareth. Their hometown is Nazareth. But see, the Messiah must be born 90 miles away in Bethlehem. 
The foster father, if you'll allow, the foster father, Joseph, he has to go register at his hometown. He brings Mary with him. By God's providence, Joseph is a young man who is tied to the royal line of David, so he's got to go to Bethlehem. Now pause here, just pause. And think with me. God is doing, God is doing 10,000 different things every second in your life that you cannot see. God is doing 10,000 things every second in your life that you can't see. And He's doing those things to accomplish His perfect will. I want to give you some medicine. I've been taking medicine all week. Went home sick Sunday. Had the flu. Actually, Blake gave it to Kyler. Kyler gave it to me. Kyler's been checking on me all week. He's been checking on to see how I'm doing. I don't think he wanted to know how I'm doing. He wanted to know, could he preach on Sunday? <laughs> he keeps checking. Hey, look, you, you, you're getting older. You should probably stay home and I'll <laughs> recover. I've been taking all this Tylenol, all this, all this way. I've been taking medicine, tired of taking medicine. Let me get, I just want you to take just a little medicine here. Be careful how you talk about the will of God. Be careful how you talk about the will of God. God's will. God does not fit His perfect will into your life. God fits your life into His perfect will. Joseph and Mary. Joseph had a trade. It's an arranged marriage with a respectable young lady, Mary. In their hometown, Nazareth, had they been left alone, they would have gotten married, had children, lived quietly, and we'd have never heard from them. God has broken in providentially, providentially, broken in providentially. And He has woven Joseph and Mary into the grand story of redemption, that grand story of redemption that is found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They are yielded. Go read the Magnificent. Mary yielded. See Joseph wrestling. Joseph yielded. When you are yielded and surrendered to the gracious will of God, when your life is hidden with God in Christ, there is no safer place to be. This, this Christmas story reminds me that God's sovereignty is sovereignly in control of all of creation. And His sovereignty means my security. I don't have to worry. This story reminds me in the, in the details now, the details, the inconveniences, the providence. If God is providentially moving, working in my life and doing 10,000 different things that I am not aware of, God is doing that. His providence means... Your protection. Let me give you a third thing to consider. Let me offer a third lesson to glean from this passage. You'll see it. Let's go to verse 6 and 7. And there they are. Let's go right there to the, to the end of it now. Point number three. God's plan. God's plan 
means our provision. If it's God's plan, he will provide. Okay, so here we are. Verse 6 and 7, you know the story. Here we are at the moment when this scared, young, unmarried girl named Mary, she's going to give birth. And nothing in this story is ideal. And all of it is God's plan. Hey, are you, are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Are you okay that when, when, when nothing seems to go right, when everything feels like an, an inconvenience or it's frustrating or disappointing or odd, or you wouldn't have done it like that? Nothing in this passage is right. All of it is God's plan. Join me there, verse 6. Let's see it. Let's see it. While they were there, now they're in Bethlehem. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Luke has given us a story. Paul reinterprets it and gives us the point in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says it like this. When the fullness of time had come, God is doing this. God sent forth, his son, sent forth His Son, born of a woman. You see, this is God's plan. Come to verse 7. Come down to verse 7. The text in verse 7 tells us that she gave birth to her firstborn, indicating she will have other children. She gave birth to her firstborn. She wrapped that baby in swaddling cloths. Like every other poor baby that's going to be born in that region, every other peasant child, wrapped up just like every other baby. That baby, keep looking at verse 7, is laid in a manger, the feeding trough. It's a terrible place to put a child. That baby is laid in a manger, verse 7. Why? Because there is no room in the inn. Now be careful here. Be careful. I've heard this used all kind of different ways. There's no room for Jesus in the inn. Is there any room for Jesus in your heart? That's a terrible way to use this passage. That's not what this means. No room for Jesus in the inn. Since, since the day this was written, the poor innkeeper has taken a beating. <laughs> so we all got the innkeeper hard-hearted and turning them away. There's nothing in here that says that. This is not because the innkeeper was so hard-hearted. This is here because God is so big-hearted. Don't you think now, if God has the ability to control Caesar Augustus, the most powerful person in Rome, don't you think if he has the, the ability to control his decree to make it so that Joseph and Mary end up in Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy in Micah chapter 5. Don't you think God could have found them a place to stay? This is God's plan. He's brought them to Bethlehem because every bit of this in verse 6 and 7 is the fulfilling of a prophecy of Micah. But why? Why was there, why was there no room in the inn? Why, why the humility? Why have him put in a, in a feeding trough? 
Why doesn't he have a place to stay? Jesus himself tells us, Luke chapter 9, verse 58. Jesus says, the foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is God's plan for the suffering servant. Paul picks it up and tells us in, in, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul tells us, you, you, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that for you, by his poverty, you might become rich. You see, God's plan to save us is seen right here in verse 7. By his, by his poverty, by his humility as a suffering servant. What did Jesus say in, in Mark chapter 2? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, it's God's plan to save His people, to save you, to purchase you out of the slavery of sin by the cross of Jesus. How does Paul tell the Philippians the Christmas story? He tells this story right here like this, Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, his humility means our hope. The love of God has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. In Bethlehem, we have a picture of his poverty, the swaddling clothes that they showed us his humanity. Laying in a manger gives us a picture of the suffering servant. No room in the inn is the story and the plan of God for Jesus to save the world. You see, Christmas, Christmas is a kept promise of love. Brothers and sisters, don't worry. Don't worry. God's sovereignty means our security. You're going to be all right. Brothers and sisters, don't worry. God's providence. Tomorrow, when you get about your business, tomorrow, God's providence means our protection. God's plan, God's perfect plan, fit into God's plan means our provision. Christmas turns our hearts to God's grace given to us in Jesus. I want you to know the kept promise of Jesus Christ. This morning as we close our time of preaching, I'll invite you just to pray with me just for a moment. With your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord in a moment of prayer. We're going to sing another song and when we do, that song is here to help us worship and lift up the name of Christ, but it is also here as a chance for you to reflect and to pray.
as we sing, if there's something you'd like to talk to a pastor about, you can come and talk to a pastor down front here or, or meet with him after church in, in the lobby waiting on you just to talk to you about what it means. Maybe today is a day where you need to ask God to forgive you of bitterness or not trusting. Or maybe, maybe when Gerald leads us, you just need to stand and sing with joy because of the good grace God has given you in Christ. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for that grace. And I pray you would apply it to the hearts of your people. God, I pray that today would be a day when our confidence is strengthened and joy is renewed and assurance is real. I pray that you draw people to yourself and use us to lift up and honor the name of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.